This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. So I'm going to talk about tropical dermatology. I love this subject because it's really practical and sooner or later, it doesn't matter where you live, you're going to see these things. And so I'm going to talk about a variety of tropical, mostly infections, that we might see. So there's a book, it's a village or something. Well, it's all one big world. People travel all over for all sorts of reasons, education, philanthropy, missionary work, warfare, migration, and basically anything can be seen anywhere. That's number one. And then as humanity expands our domain, we start cutting down all the rainforests. We're moving right where the vectors are. Or the vectors find their way to us. So these things that are rare are not so rare anymore unless there are specific things we can do to control them. So if you talk about all of tropical dermatology, thinking about hot, humid environments, basically sunburn and miliaria phototoxic reactions are the most common things, but I'm really going to concentrate on that last bullet point um, and not talk about the other ones. So here's an interesting thing. Remember that travelers from the United States may acquire tropical diseases and disorders through a variety of methods, everything from unprotected sex to environmental exposures to bites, stings, contact with insects and parasites, contaminated food and water and other drink. Travelers to the United States who are from somewhere else bring the diseases here. I'm not talking about building a wall. I'm just saying that they can bring stuff in and you have to think about that. If you're seeing someone who's visiting their family, but they're really from Ghana, they could have African sleeping sickness if they start going downhill and have a rash. So always remember that. Here's my first ARS. How many short-term travelers engage in casual sexual contact? They're away from home. You know, what happens in... Maracaibo stays in Maracaibo. Okay, well, half of you, give or take, said 5 to 50%, and the rest of you said 33%. So even if you said 33%, you're sort of in the average right. The answer actually is 5 to 50%, and this is particularly true of young travelers whether they're school and they're going to school abroad or whether they're short-term, very short-term, like vacation down in Tijuana or for whatever reason. And at least half of those, so half of 50% or half of 25% don't use barrier protection. So it's a good way to acquire an odd STD that we in the United States may not recognize and may not know immediately how to treat. Now, the relative risk of acquiring a tropical infection is really still fairly small. And I cite this paper. It's pretty old, but there have been some since that that have the same sort of statistic. So during this time period that they measured in this paper, 59 Americans acquired leishmaniasis 
traveling to areas that are endemic at a time period when over five million people travel to the area. So it is rare. But when you see it, it's good if you recognize it, and it's even better if you know how to treat it. Now, the risk also increases with the duration of exposure. So you have a lot of young people engaging in basically foreign education, or they might be exchange students, so they're living there for quite some time. You have US business people that are stationed in tropical areas for long periods of time. And then while we may not, for most of us, take care of the military, there are also civilians who support the military in places where tropical diseases can be acquired. Think Iraq, think Afghanistan. I'm gonna show you a vivid example of that. So it's important to have a travel history and to know where people have been and how long they've been there. If they've had a long stint there, they're even more likely to acquire an unusual disease. The majority, but not by overwhelming numbers of them, will develop the tropical disorder while they're in the tropics. And you want to know the truth, it's probably better because any healthcare provider there will know the diagnosis. But about 40% will have the onset of their tropical infection when they come back to the United States. And while traditionally this has been mostly men, businessmen, those in the military, support of the military, that proportion has been gradually changing. So it's not a gender thing, it's who goes where and how long they stay there. So history is really important. Travel history is really important. It's part, I think I mentioned this the other day, this is part of my intake form now. Where have you been during the last year outside the United States? I really want to know that. It's also an interesting paradox because Americans tend to get worse care for tropical disease, and it's pretty obvious why, because they don't recognize the disease. They go to their healthcare provider. I don't care who it is, if they're American trained, they're scratching their head and they're thinking, well, what is this? I've never seen anything like this. Whereas people from outside the United States, foreign individuals who either come here or who live here but go back home, acquire something while they're visiting relatives, they usually are familiar with the diseases that are endemic in those areas and or they seek medical care from individuals who are from those same countries, so there's sort of an instant recognition. 75% of tropical dermatologic infectious disease consists of cutaneous larval migraines. It can be larva or larval, pyoderma, just secondarily infected trauma, bites, stings, including scabies, myiasis, tungiasis. And then about 1% to 4% each of these other things may be part of what one can acquire overseas. And I'm going to concentrate on these disorders. So also remember that we have global warming, maybe. <laughs> kind of depends who you believe. But clearly it has changed the pattern of diseases. Some areas have become hotter and drier. Some areas have become more humid with more rainfall. And that may change the pattern of disease over time. And we'll wait and see what it does to the United States. Second question. Oral ivermectin, not topical, pill, oral ivermectin fails to treat 
what disease? Scabies, head lice, larva migraines, tongueiasis, or it works for all of the above. Okay. Oh, lovely, I like spreads like that. So you're gonna get the answer later, but 28% of you got it right. Okay. Chemo. Anybody know what Chemo is? Don't say it out loud, just think to yourself. Chemo is a simple, safe, and cheap, I love simple, safe, and cheap, treatment for which one of these tropical diseases? Myiasis, tongueiasis, leishmaniasis, Zika virus, or dengue? Oh, another good spread. That means a lot of people don't know. You'll get the answer later. Okay, so this is a real case. You know, I like to show real cases. Most all of the clinical pictures I show you showed up in my office. They showed up in my office, they can show up in your office. So here's a 66-year-old lady who went on an eco-vacation in Central America. Actually, it was Costa Rica. Five days after returning, she develops a headache, a fever, the non-blanching rash. So it's red, but if you try and blanch it, you can't. So you know there's some capillary leak. There are red blood cells that have leaked out of those blood vessels. Non-blanching rash on skin, more still on her legs. Then she develops conjunctival purpura, nausea, vomiting, arthralgia, myalgia. She said it was the worst flu she's ever had in her life and she's just been to Central America. So what you should be thinking is these three entities. They are part of the arbovirus. Arboviruses, there are lots of them. Some of them affect people, some affect animals, some affect people and animals. There's four different families within the arbovirus category. And what that means is arbo is arthropod born. So they're carried by an insect, mostly mosquitoes, but sometimes ticks, and occasionally other insect as well. The mosquitoes of significance for us are Aedes species. So there's Aedes aegypti, most commonly, and Aedes albopictus, those two species of mosquitoes. They tend to bite at dawn or dust. For which arbovirus is there now an approved vaccine outside the United States, of course, an approved vaccine for which arbovirus? Survey says, dengue, very good, that's the right answer. 50% of you got it, the rest of you will know more about that in just a second. I want, 92% on this one. Microcephaly is associated with which arbovirus disease? Dengue, Zika, chikungunya, tongueiasis, or myiasis. If you don't know this, you've been living in a cave under a rock in Greenland. Yes, 97%, yay, y'all knew that one. 
but there's more. Which arbovirus was first described in Uganda in 1947? That's a long time ago. Myiasis, tungiasis, leishmaniasis, Zika, or dengue? Dengue got the most votes, but there's a good spread, so you're going to learn the right answer very shortly. Okay, so this is the man arthropod cycle. Bite from an infected person carried by the arthropod bites an uninfected person. They get sick. Bite, transmit, bite, transmit. And this is not a joking thing. This can be a real problem. This is a health department poster from Hawaii where they had a huge outbreak of dengue fever. So this isn't just some thing that we think about. This is real. So let's talk about the arboviruses of note. First is dengue. There are four different types. There are 50 to 100 million infections. And you can see in yellow is where it used to be, and its domain has spread rather widely, including Central South America, Mexico, and the Caribbean, particularly Puerto Rico. So this is a big problem now. And dengue can be everything from a little fever all the way to shock and death. But the most common signs and symptoms are very similar, as I said before, with the other arboviruses, are going to be fever, headache. In this case, it tends to be retroorbital pain behind the eyes, myalgia, arthralgia, and some sort of bleeding phenomenon whether it's hematuria, hematoschesia, petechiae purpura, bloody nose, some sort of bleeding syndrome. So the way to make the diagnosis, there are ELISA antibodies, which are positive after only one week following exposure, so that's pretty quick. And what you want is a sick person with fever, headache, myalgia, arthralgia, a rash, maybe retroorbital pain, and a travel history to an endemic area. And there's a, a bunch of things in the differential diagnosis. These are examples of dengue. The first patient whose picture I showed you from Costa Rica, that ended up being dengue. Is there dengue? Yes, there is dengue. So this is a little older paper, but you know, 200 suspected cases, 100 of them ended up being dengue. So it does occur in the United States, mostly in Americans who have traveled to Central America, which includes Nicaragua, not a really big destination place, Costa Rica and Belize, big destination places for Americans, Dominican Republic, sometimes Puerto Rico, big destination in India, going to see the Taj Mahal, come home with dengue. So there's no treatment, so there's no antiviral, so it's all supportive therapy, trying to avoid mosquito bites, as I mentioned, and mosquito control locally. There is a dengue vaccine, you all, a lot of you got that right. It's available in all of the countries I have listed here, but it isn't good. It's only about 60% effective. The NIH has developed another dengue vaccine, which looks to be close to 100% effective for all four types of dengue. There are four subtypes, so we may see that. Chikungunya related, transmitted by the same organisms, same two types of mosquitoes, has the same almost set of symptoms as dengue. These are examples of chikungunya. 
go to this website if you get a chance. Or you can just Google chikungunya blog. There are about three blogs of individuals who had chikungunya. One's a woman from New England. This woman lives in St. Croix. And then she went for a vacation to Puerto Rico and came back with this. It is not a benign illness. You can be sick for months. You can be sick for years from this. Does it kill? Not usually, but it's a really nasty thing. So fever, headache, arthralgias, bad arthralgias, so bad you don't want to get out of bed. Myalgias, and then this, nonspecific. These don't blanch too terribly well, she said in her blog, so there's a degree of petechial component or purpuric component to this. And she was sick forever. It's an interesting blog to read. Now, how many cases of chikungunya do we see in the US? So look at 2014, 15, and 16. It's been less and less, and we were really worried because we do have those mosquitoes, the 80s species in the US. We were worried about a big epidemic. There were a few native cases in Florida back in 2014. One case native appeared to be from Texas. And in 2016, very small number of cases and absolutely none. They were all in travelers who acquired it outside. So even though we have the mosquitoes, for some reason, it didn't turn into the big epidemic everyone feared. And this is where chikungunya is. It can be a chronic disease, persisting myalgia, arthralgia. It can cause Guillain-Barre. And it's interesting in very old, I don't know what that is, but old, older than Medicare age, and very young, under age about six, seven, so five and under, can actually have persistent cognitive difficulties after chikungunya. So these aren't benign diseases. In what body fluid can Zika virus be recovered for six months? Sweat, saliva, plasma, urine, or semen? Semen. Very good. That's the correct answer. But that's relatively recent information. We didn't think it was that long, but now it's been clearly demonstrated it can last for a very long time. What's the implication? Because Zika can be asymptomatic and is 80% of the time. So let's just take a scenario. Business guy travels to Brazil for business, gets bitten, acquires Zika, is asymptomatic, comes home, makes love to his wife. He has no idea it's in his semen. Not only is it in the semen, it's, it's 100,000 times the concentration of there compared to serum. So that's the problem with this. And Zika started in Uganda in 1947. That was the first human case. And then it spread eastward until it hit South America. Brazil has been and still is experiencing a Zika epidemic. And then it went from there to there and then to the Caribbean. And there are many, many cases ongoing in Puerto Rico. And this is the CDC warning of all the places that we should be careful above. Notice Puerto Rico, Haiti, St. Martin, another destination for US tourists. Asymptomatic, as I mentioned, the same set of signs and symptoms. Sexual transmission is what makes this different from the other arboviruses. And transmission from man to woman, man to man, and woman to man have all been documented. 
It's most common male to female, but it can transmit any which way sexually. And if you're asymptomatic, you don't know that you're transmitting it. So that's important. We have no vaccine yet. And this is the shedding. This is the Sentinel article that showed it was present in semen 181 days. It can cause death in debilitated individuals. Now, we all know microcephaly. You all got that right, 97%. But it does other things, too. It can interfere with the pregnancy process and cause miscarriage. It can cause congenital contractures. Babies are born like this. It can cause eye and brain problems even without microcephaly. And it can cause Guillain-Barre, and as I mentioned, even death in adults who acquire this. So Zika is a really bad actor. Last year, there were native cases in Florida and Brownsville, Texas. So no travel history. They found the virus in mosquitoes in these, in these places, and individuals became infected and symptomatic. Native cases. But as of June 1, 2017, as of now, there have only been 123 cases, that's way, way down, of Zika virus in the US. 122 of those were from documented travelers. They went from the US to somewhere like Brazil or elsewhere where the virus is prevalent. They acquired the infection, came back and became symptomatic in the United States. The one exception to that was a woman who had intercourse with her husband who acquired Zika but was asymptomatic when he traveled to Brazil. So almost all of these have been, all but one, have been travelers. We've had no, no endogenous cases in the United States in 2017. So very much like chikungunya, while we worried about a huge epidemic, because this is where the mosquitoes are located. Look at the orange band along the southern portion of the United States, the Gulf of Mexico, and the lower Atlantic seaboard. Even though we have the mosquitoes, we really haven't seen the disease so far. So it's mostly, if you have someone you're thinking, Zika, or dengue, or chikungunya for that matter, think where have they been. It's probably in a traveler. And this is just for fun, because we have no specific therapy. But if you have a pregnant patient who happens to have Zika, you can save the day. This was a screening of looking at drugs that stop Zika virus replication. And the one that worked that's safe in pregnancy is daptomycin. It's an antibiotic. It's cubicin. And while it's not indicated for Zika, in vitro, in all sorts of different cells, it stopped Zika from multiplying dead in its tracks. And this would be safe to administer during pregnancy, just FYI. And we're looking at changing the, changing the hosts so that they can actually even carry the virus. OK, leishmaniasis is transmitted by a sand flea, a sand fly, a sand worm, a sand dune, or none of the above. I want zero on D. Anybody who writes D, there's a plumber school somewhere here. Oh my God. Whoever you are, leave the hall immediately. Okay, 
It's a little confusing between sand flea and sand fly. It's actually the sand fly. The sand flea is tungiasis, which we'll talk about. Which of the following is a new drug for leishmaniasis? Nefertamox, miltefazine, thiabendazole, benznitazole, or albendazole for leishmaniasis. Survey says, oh, a nice spread again. <laughs> You'll learn. Okay, so here's leishmaniasis. You know, it's rare in returning travelers, but it is seen. There's old world and new world. New world, South and Central America, tends to be worse, tends not to spontaneously resolve, and tends to be mucocutaneous. So it's not only on the skin, it's on the mucosa, and it's very destructive. Old world leishmaniasis, like from the Middle East and Africa, tends to be spontaneously resolving, not as bad, generally speaking. These are carried by sand flies. The phlebotomus, then there's a species in the old world, Middle East, Africa, and in the new world, it's Lutzemia species. And it infects the histiocytic cells, and we don't know why the histiocytes don't get rid of them. They just keep multiplying in the histiocytes. The interesting thing is because we're sending military people and their support staff to places like Iraq and Afghanistan where leishmaniasis is very common, we have one to two plus percent of those people are coming back with leishmaniasis. The way to make the diagnosis, biopsy usually is sufficient because you'll see the organisms in the histiocytes, but you can also send off to the CDC, they'll do a free culture for you on NNN media. Not only that, they will look at, there are ways to look at the uh, flagella and also some other structures and they can tell you, they can directly speciate them and they can tell you what would be the best thing to give for that particular species in terms of treatment, which we'll talk about. This is early leishmaniasis. That's a US military person who was stationed in Panama and a native Panamanian. It looks kind of like apple jelly colored, it looks like a granuloma except it's filled with leishmania. This was an oil worker, oil field worker from Guatemala, came back to Houston and then said, I have this thing on my nose. Ended up being leishmaniasis. These are tourists, one to Mexico, one to Israel, who both came back with leishmaniasis. It tends to look like a granuloma and then it ulcerates. It's kind of like sporotrichosis. That's what it looks like. This was a civilian truck driver for the US Army in Iraq. Look at all those lesions. Wait till you see his wrist. These are very nasty things. Interestingly enough, they usually don't hurt too much. They just look really bad. And of course, they can become secondarily infected. This is from Panama, a native Panamanian. This is from the Sudan. This is not uncommon. It's called the chiclero ulcer. You see it on the pinna, on the outside of the pinna, on the rim of the pinna, in folks from Mexico. Both of these were patients who were undocumented from Mexico and were seen here in Houston. This is the mucocutaneous version. This is what people get in South America, and not Mexico usually, but South America. And this is very destructive. I'm glad you haven't had lunch yet, because it's really destructive. 
Okay, and then there's some variance. The recidivans version means it's recurring. It's been quiet. They had leishmaniasis. They usually even know they had leishmaniasis, and they had a little scar. And then that little scar all of a sudden starts getting bigger, and other scars appear. And you see this in leishmaniasis from the Middle East. So like she was from Iran. She had uh, leishmaniasis years ago, and then all of a sudden it started to get worse. Recidivans recurring. You have lots of treatment options. The treatment of choice is pentavalent antimonial drugs. You can get those from the CDC. There's the phone number. They're given either IV or IM. I would let an infectious disease person do this because they're not totally benign. They can cause heart problems, pancreas problems. I've already got you to not do it, right? So that's good. The other thing is heat. They do respond to thermotherapy, and there's actually and agents called the Thermomed, it's approved in the US to treat leishmaniasis. Y'all don't need to go buy one because you're not gonna likely see this, but in centers like ours where we have a lot of ex-military and we're also authorized to see some civilians who served in the, for the military, we have one and you just put heat on there and it burns the living daylights out of them. It's you know, 50 degrees centigrade, it's about 120 degrees Fahrenheit and that's what you get but it makes the leishmaniasis go away. This is the new drug. It's a lecithin derivative. It's called miltefazine, or brand name is Impavito. It's been approved for a number of years, but it's finally actually available here by prescription in the United States. It's category X, so never in a pregnant woman or someone hoping to conceive in the near future. It works actually better for the worst disease the mucocutaneous disease, but it also works for cutaneous disease. Almost all the studies have been done in Central and South America, so we don't have a lot of studies on it in the Middle East because that tends to resolve spontaneously anyhow. And it's real easy to administer. It's either two or three, 50 milligrams, depending upon their weight. They're over 45 kilos. So almost every adult gets three of them a day. And that's what happens. They still have a scar, but it makes the thing heal up. Okay, dermoscopy is helpful in confirming the diagnosis of Zika virus, tongiasis, leishmaniasis, amoebiasis, and dengue. Very good. Got a nice split. We got two big pillars there. So it's actually tongiasis. I'll show you a picture of that a little later. Here's amoebiasis, which a lot of you voted for. You know, 10% of the entire world's population is infected with amoeba histolytica. We don't think about that here very often, do we? But it causes 100,000 deaths a year, amoebic dysentery primarily, but also amoebic abscesses like in the liver. Most of this is transmitted by either contaminated food, fecal-oral contamination, or by sex with someone who's got amoebic dysentery. And it's just the organism causes tissue damage. You can find it on biopsy. An astute pathologist can find it. I've highlighted it with the arrow there. It kind of blends in with the background, but when it's a nasty lesion, it's pretty easy to find. And these are examples of amoebiasis that I have seen. So the first gentleman there, that's an amoebic ulcer of the penis. 
he had rectal intercourse with a woman who was having diarrhea in an area where amoebiasis is endemic. So that's how he acquired this, by rectal intercourse, and then he got top locally amoebic ulcer. The woman who has those chronic ulcers, and these are painful, has these chronic ulcers, um, she had intercourse with a man who had amoebic dysentery whose penis was probably contaminated from all the diarrhea he was having. So that's how it mostly is passed, but also contaminated food and fecal-oral contamination. There are treatments for this. We won't administer those. ID will. The reason for me showing you this is persistent ulcers in a patient with a travel history. Amoebiasis is very common in undeveloped countries. So if they've been to some strange place, I have a rule of thumb. My rule of thumb is a real simple one. Exotic places equals exotic diseases. So always get that travel history. You may never see this. I have been blessed, in a sense, to have seen African trypanosomiasis in the United States. This is carried by the tsetse fly. African trypanosomiasis is also called African sleeping sickness. So what happens is they get personality disorders, then they get lethargic, then they go into a coma, and then they die. So this is not a very good thing. The reservoir our game, and it's transmitted by this fly in areas of high rainfall in Africa. There are two types. There's West African or Gambian. Gambia is up at the top of that purple stuff. And East African or Rhodesian. Rhodesia doesn't exist anymore. It's Zimbabwe. But originally, it was described nicely from Rhodesia. And that's the green. The green, the eastern version, goes downhill really quickly coma and death really quickly, the purple region is a little slower. So what you see is an area where they've been bitten that looks a little weird. They may have a rash, and then they start getting CNS symptoms. That's at CC fly. Another thing, just you'll probably never see it, and my patient didn't have it either, is posterior cervical adenopathy. It's called winter bottom sign supposed to be very typical for it. This was my patient. He was a missionary who went out on a photo safari, so he wasn't shooting the animals. There were swarms of tsetse flies, and they still went into the area, and they knew that the flies were biting them. That's how the trypanosome is spread, and that's his arm with the big erosion there and some crust around it. That's the inoculation site. And if you look really closely, you can see on his legs some faint red things. He was life-flighted back from uh, where he was doing the photo shoot, photo safari, to Houston. And the history, and he was with a, another person, and the person gave the story of the flies, and he's obtunded, and now he doesn't know anything. He's not oriented at all to anything. And I said, oh, it's African sleeping sickness, with confidence, even though I was totally guessing. And what you do is you just do a thick blood smear, and you find the trypanosomes in the blood. So we did a poke of the finger without informed consent. But he was abundant, and he was sick. So did a thick blood smear, went down to the lab, had the diagnosis before ID had even come to do the consult. It was so cool. 
Anyhow, and there are treatments for this. Again, drugs we don't routinely administer. Now, this is one you might see. The person I'm showing here was a 32-year-old Houston native. He had sex on the beach and then slept on the beach. You know, oh, so much fun. The girl left. He slept on the beach in Cancun, Mexico. And two days later, he developed this boil-like lesion on his penis. And it was a little kind of oozing, kind of looks like a boil, except he said his penis felt like it was moving. I'm thinking, really? Spontaneously? Like, is it going to do jumping for me or something? So an IND led to that coming out of his penis. He fainted dead away <laughs> when I showed him the organism that had just come out of his penis. But that's curative. So this is a fly larva. And there are different flies that lay their larva on the skin, usually in a wound. And the larva crawls in there until it matures into an adult fly, and then it flies away. There are different flies that do this around the world, and I've listed them. The ones we primarily will see will be the bot fly. I'll show you a picture of a bot fly, or Dermatobia hominis. That's number one. The big red box is the bot fly. These are big flies, nasty flies. And it's interesting that the bot fly has a different life cycle than all the other flies that have their, all the other flies lay their eggs into an orifice or near an orifice or near an open wound directly. The eggs, because of the warmth, hatch. The larva crawls in until it matures. The bot fly, the one we will see 99% of the time, actually glues its egg to the bottom of a mosquito. When the mosquito bites a human, the warmth signals the egg to drop off. The egg then hatches because of the warmth of the skin and the larva crawls in. So it's a little different life cycle. It looks like a boil. But the larva in here are alive and they're moving. And almost everyone will tell you, this boil is moving. Like he said, his penis was moving. And basically, that's what it is. And here's one being pulled out. Here's a beautiful specimen. I take credit for that one. So the little black things at the end, those are breathing spiracles. So they burrow in. They have the spiracles pointing up so they can breathe. All those little black things are spines to keep them attached inside the skin. So you see the little breathing spiracles and all the little spines? Those spines hold them in. So they've got to want to come out, or they've got to be dead for you to fetch them. This is different. You see the organisms there. This is from South America, and this is one that would have been laid directly. There are all the little larvae. This is from Africa, a different species. You pull those out, all the little fly larvae. This is in Houston. This is a little girl who went on vacation with her parents, came back with what the parents were sure were boils. Look at her scalp. See those openings? They're really big for boils. Usually a boil is, you know, comes to a point. It's not that big. Opening them up, look what's in there. Larva. It's cool. So the therapy is either to completely surgical incise them, but excise them, but you can't just make a little incision and hope that you can pull them out because those spines are stuck laterally into the skin. So if you're going to get them out surgically, the best, or pull them out through the opening, the best thing to do is give them oral ivermectin. One dose, 200 micrograms per kilogram, and next day they're dead. 
those little spines retract and you can just pull them out. Or you can traditionally, what's been done is occlude the opening where the breathing spiracles are and then they asphyxiate and they know they're dying. So they say, I'm getting the hell out of Dodge. And they just come out into the material you've put to occlude the opening. So traditionally, that's been things like bacon fat, something they can crawl into, because you don't want them to just die in situ, or peanut butter, petrolatum. Here's an example of one with petrolatum under tegaderm, and a day later, there's the organism shimmying out. Now, I mentioned chemo in your quiz. Chemo is actually a nicotine paste that's favored by those of South American descent mostly Venezuelans, but it's used throughout South America. And if you live in an area where there's a high Latino population, in the drugstores in the Latino part of town, they'll often have chemo. So you put this over the opening, the nicotine in the chemo makes them already crazy. Like, they're just moving around. I just need to get away from this because I'm really wild. And then the thickness of the paste occludes their breathing spiracles, so they're not only wild, they're suffocating, and they want out, and they just crawl right out into the chemo in a day. And it's dirt cheap. But the other way is to give them ivermectin and pull it out later. Based on recent literature, which of the following is the drug of choice for larva migraines? Nitrofuramox, miltefacine, you know it's not miltefacine, we just talked about that for being leishmaniasis. Thiabendazole, benznidazole, or albendazole. Drug of choice for larva migraines. Fifty-five percent of you, I'm surprised that's very good. That's the correct answer is albendazole. So it used to be thiabendazole, but that's kind of a bad drug, toxic drug, albendazole is a structural analog that's much safer. I'll talk about it in just a second. So this is otherwise known as the creeping eruption. And of all the things I'm going to talk about today, it's probably the most likely one you're going to see. So this is basically an animal hookworm that's in a beach. And the people walk around the beach. The animal hookworm senses heat. So it thinks, oh, it's a dog or cat. Penetrates the skin and then says, oh, shit. This isn't a dog or cat. This is a human. I gotta find a puppy or a kitten. So it starts rolling around, and that's why it's migrating, because it's trying to find its natural host. These will die eventually. They will, but nobody wants something rolling around in its skin, leaving these tracks. Most common one is Ancelostoma brasiliensis, dog and cat hookworm. If you do nothing, four months later it'll be gone, give or take. But who wants to look like this for four months? Now keep in mind, these are, key, these are still migrating. So this is going to get bigger. And you don't know where the thing is. Because the inflammation you see lags behind a day of where the organism has migrated. So what you think is the end there, it could be north, south, east, or west of that area. You have no idea where it is. And you'll still see in textbooks using cryotherapy for this. It's totally crazy, because you don't know where to freeze, and you have to freeze really hard, like 20 to 40 seconds. Ugh, that's not good. Here's a kid with it. Here's some more examples. All of these are mine. 
Here's another one kind of all over the place. Now you see where it started down by the umbilicus and now it's up higher, but you don't know where it is. You don't know where to freeze. And this is what they look like. This is actually my biopsy. I, this was from my old professor. He wanted a histology, didn't have one of these. So we had a case and I cut out two centimeters <laughs> around where I thought the end was to find that he step sectioned the whole thing till he found it. I figure at least I cured him. So cryo surgery, you don't know where it is. Thiobendazole's gone by the way. Oral albendazole, it's called albenza, is probably the best treatment. 200 milligrams twice a day for five to seven days, or almost as good is a single 400 milligram dose, two 200s, it only comes as two, and that's what I use. Ivermectin, not approved for this, but it also can work. 200 micrograms per kilogram as a single dose, or it can be given at weight-based um, 15 milligrams per kilogram for children. But for adults, it's a single 200 microgram per kilogram dose. Head-to-head -head albendazole versus ivermectin, they're almost the same. It's the drug of choice. Okay. Tungiasis is due to a sand flea, sand fly, Sandworm, sand dune, or none of the above. Did I do this one already? I think I did. Well, let's do it again. Okay, 63% now got it correct. So it's a sand flea. It's the smallest flea. It's one millimeter, tiny and the gravid flea crawls into the skin, absorbs nutrients, gets much larger, has eggs, spits the eggs out into the environment, and then dies. And then it's basically a foreign body reaction. That's what it's left with. And this is an example. She walked in, and she said, I have a ward I need frozen off. She had just come back from Tanzania, where she was a Peace Corps volunteer. And you see it's a hyperkeratotic rim, but you see right in the center, a little off-center, there's that black area. That's the opening of the flea that's used to urinate, defecate, and breathe. It does everything. It's like one orifice, real simple organism. And here's dermoscopy. Remember I asked that? If you look at it, that's a nail. That's the great toenail. And you can see the organism right here and see those little white things? Those are all eggs that it's extruding into the environment. So dermatoscopic exam, these usually, it's a sand, so these usually occur on the feet. So a dermatoscopic exam, you can see the organism, you can see the eggs, you know what it is. This is surgical removal. But if it stays there long enough, it's just a foreign body. And it, the body responds by hyperkeratosis, and that's what you see. And that hurts. It can get inflamed. It can get secondarily infected. In high endemic areas, this ends up causing cellulitis. has been the cause of amputations. In the US, we wouldn't let it go that far. But instead of freezing her, I took one of those little dermal blades and went zoop, and there it is. It's gone. It's all you have to do. These are really atypical sites breast, buttocks. So I've already talked about the life cycle of the flea and surgical removal. Oral ivermectin does not kill this one. 
It's the only one of most of the things I've talked about, except the viral things, that ivermectin does not help. I don't have time to talk about onchocerciasis, loiasis, and elephantiasis. Again, these are nematodes, they're worms that would be acquired outside the United States. And I'm not going to talk about the non-venereal treponemal diseases, yaws, pinta, and basal. Let me make one point. I, made, I wanted to make it um, when Dr. Pandia was talking about vitiligo. The end stage of pinta looks exactly like vitiligo. So someone who has vitiligo who says, my skin was originally kind of blue, and I had some lymph nodes, maybe they'll call them bumps, or maybe they didn't notice them. It was kind of blue, and now it's all white. That's actually pinta. Very rare to see it in the US, because it's in rural, rural areas in Central and South America. But it does happen. But I do want to talk about two more things, and then I'm done. So one is dracunculosis. This is the guinea worm. Africa, India, Pakistan, and the Arabian Peninsula, the only place that's found now. And it's ingested with, it's due to the ingestion of contaminated water that have a water flea. And in the water flea is the larva of a worm. The worm is Dracunculus medinensis. And so the larva of the worm gets swallowed with the contaminated water. The larva then migrate. They actually micro-penetrate the intestine. Male meets female, they mate. Male dies. Female, who's gravid, now wants to lay eggs. So they burrow to the skin surface, form what looks like a boil, and then spit eggs out. But the interesting thing is that you can actually see the worm, and you just pull the worm out. So it's from water like this. The reason we don't see this much in the world anymore is because of efforts to give clean water supply even to the most poor of communities. And that's the worm. You see it. People twirl it on a stick or something. That's the female worm twirled. Another little female worm. So cute. Another female worm. We've actually had a couple of these in our medical center. But the clean water supply, you see, it took it from 3.5 million cases to about 5,000, and only in those few countries, and only in the most rural areas of those countries. It will die with ivermectin. So ivermectin is another thing to use. And it probably is good to take the female out and then treat with ivermectin to make sure if there are any larvae still rolling around the abdominal cavity that you get rid of them. And the last one I'm going to talk about is Beruli ulcer, caused by mycobacterium. I thought it was unfair we didn't give the bacteria a shot here. So mycobacterium ulcerans, we don't really know how it's transmitted. It's recently been found in the environment, but we don't know if it's fecal oral contamination, or it's a bite of an insect, or drinking water. We just don't know. Mostly children, but sometimes adults. It's a nodule that becomes an ulcer. Beruli ulcer. And it's treated, it's a mycobacterium, so it's treated with anti-TB drugs, or if it's small enough, it can be excised. The anti-TB drugs that are usually used are clarithromycin and rifampin. If it stays there long enough, squamous cell carcinoma can occur. This is where it's seen. Now, the reason I show this in red is where you see Beruli ulcer, endemic. The reason I show this is that's Mexico, and that's Australia, and a lot of Americans visit Mexico, and a lot of Americans visit Australia. 
And the majority of cases, I've seen probably two dozen now, the majority, a couple were in immigrants who were here and they ended up in my office, but the rest of them were all American tourists. So you don't have to be in the area very long. You have to be out in nature. You're not gonna get this in the Sydney Hilton, but if you're out in nature in Mexico, it's not particularly beaches like larval migrants. It's more like foresty areas. So if you're out doing missionary work or volunteer work or for business or whatever, and you're out in the wild in Mexico or in Australia, particularly in the central part of Australia, then you can certainly see this. Another name for it is Barnsdale ulcer. Barnsdale is a town close to Melbourne in Australia. That's how common it is there. Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, Central Africa, most of your patients aren't gonna be, but Mexico and Australia. And that's what it looks like. It's just an ulcer from hell, and it just does not go away, and it does not wanna heal, and you can do all the wet and dry dressings and slap mupirocin on here and give them Keflex, and it's just not gonna get better. And it just gets bigger and deeper, and it hurts. So you see something like this travel history. I'm gonna show you natives, but travel history is important. An ulcer that just doesn't wanna go away. Most of these are on the hands and feet, but they can be elsewhere. And when they heal, they heal with contracture. So Beruli ulcer, clarithromycin and rifampin, no sweat for us to administer those. And these do heal, but they take a very long time to do so, three to six months, sometimes even longer. If they're small, like that one I showed you on the abdomen of the child, just deep, wide and deep excision is, is considered appropriate therapy. So, after all this, do you dare go to the tropics? So let me share some of my pictures of the tropics. Oh my God, so beautiful. Sunset on Maui. So I'm not giving up my tropical vacations because of this, and neither will your patients, but I think it's kind of common sense. Don't eat or drink stuff that could be contaminated because it's in some little village. I remember I, I went to Panama as part of a medical mission, and this, the villagers were very, very happy that we were there. And they offered us a grilled iguana. And I'm thinking, I don't know where this iguana's been. I don't know what it's carrying. So I politely said, no, thank you. I'm not hungry. Actually, I was starving, but I wasn't gonna eat the iguana. You know, don't drink water that could be contaminated from a village. Bring bottled water. You know, if there are biting insects around and you see them, like that guy who got Africa trypanosomiasis, when he saw a swarm of flies, you go the other way. You don't drive into the swarm of flies. Bad idea. Don't go where there's standing water, which promotes the proliferation of mosquitoes, which can carry all those, lots of arboviruses other than the three I talked about, let alone those three. If you go somewhere strange and you come back and you start feeling bad, right away seek medical attention. Don't wait until it becomes a problem. So those are some of the caveats and I hope that this has helped you 
understand and be more ready to take care of some of the more common of the tropical infections. Thank you very much. The overall performance of the speaker. Oh, God, a seven. This is, this is really good. Have him back next year. How useful will this session be in your practice? Not so sure, but you know, it might come in handy someday. As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? I'm not going to give anyone an appointment if they've traveled recently. <laughs> and I'm not going to go where they went. Okay, we have a few minutes for questions. We're coming up on lunch. Do you screen all Puerto Rico patients? Puerto Rico? What's the PR? Who sent that in? Oh. Peter Rice is, oh, Peter Rice is in there. Puerto Rico. Let's not be discriminating here, you know. <laughs> President Trump probably does, but, you know, I think Puerto Ricans are nice people. Um, do you screen pityriasis? You're damn right I do. Because I worked in a, an STD clinic for 25 years. I've seen more secondary syphilis than most dermatologists could dream about. And I still can't tell the difference all the time. And they may not have palms and soles, and they may not have mucus patches or patchy hair loss. So yes, I do. And you want to know, I'll tell you my famous story, was a young priest who came in, and he had to all the world Christmas tree pattern, a herald patch. He had PR, and I said, look, Father, I know you're a man of the cloth, but I got to get a blood test positive for syphilis. So, and then there's a story that goes after that, and I will leave that to your vivid imagination. But the answer is yes, I do. Can women planning pregnancy be screened for Zika prior to conceiving? Well, the answer is yes, but remember, it's not, you, you can get a, a, a test. There's um, an IgM test. So, but what if they're negative? If their partner has been to an endemic area, comes back and is asymptomatic, and then has sex with them during pregnancy, it seems to be Zika's most dangerous during the first trimester of pregnancy, then your initial screening was useless. So the current recommendation is, if the people live in, if they travel to, if the partner, male partner, have been in an endemic area, and now the couple's trying to conceive, you wait six months. Because that way, it should be out of the semen no matter what. How accurate is Zika testing? There are different Zika tests. And the one that's done by um, the US Department of Health and sanctioned by the CDC is the most accurate. It's not on most people's acquisition sheets. So if you write Zika blood test, you don't know what's actually going to be done. And some of the tests that are commercially available and approved, but they're less sensitive and specific. And you have really no control over that. Positives are positive, but there are some false negatives. Um, does length, dose and length of therapy for dapsomycin for pregnant females? I don't know, I haven't administered daptomycin. It's not approved for that. It would be the same dosage in theory. In theory, it would be the same dosage as used 
for MRSA, and I'd have to look that up, because that's not in my normal repertoire. And I just put that in there uh, just in case. Are all the rashes associated with arboviruses non-blanching? No, some of them can be kind of maculopapular and blanching, but most, the dengue almost always is non-blanching. Chikungunya and Zika may or may not be non-blanching. If it's non-blanching, if there's petechiae and purpura in there, strongly think arbovirus. How do you diagnose amoebiasis ulcers? Biopsy. You find the organism in tissue. That's the way to make the diagnosis. Uh, what's your preferred approach to delusional parasitosis? Oh my god. <laughs> um, OK, I'll give you two approaches. The first approach is medical approach. So things like pimazide, olanzapine, um, some atypical antipsychotics do well. That N-acetylcysteine that's been used for other addictive obsessive compulsive things like pyrigonodularis, trichotillomania, neurotic excoriations, those kind of things. N-acetylcysteine, 1,200 milligrams to 4,800 milligrams going up every two to three weeks, depending, sometimes helps. Sometimes they need a mental health professional. Now, I won't mention names, but, and he's dead, so I don't want to defame him, but when I was a resident and we worked in one of the staff's offices, it was a rotation, he had a patient with delusions of parasitosis, Morgellons disease, with delusions of parasitosis, and the guy brought a little bottle with all the debris and stuff and said, look at my parasites, they're everywhere. And he looked at my mentor, looked at the patient straight in the eye and he said, hit the road, Jack. I don't like that approach. I don't think that's humane. But it's something to consider. So anyhow, thank you very much. Lunchtime. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.